Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. The Dillard family of companies, including Dillard Door and Security, Tri-State Glass, and Trace Electric, are proud sponsors of WYXR. For the past 75 years, the Dillard companies have provided products that secure Memphis. From installing the iconic gates at Graceland to the Memphis Tigers Liberty Bowl locker room, Dillard protects what matters to Memphians like you. For more information, visit DillardDoor.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the host of the program. And this week, I've got a guest that I've been trying to persuade to come on for a while. And it's Tom Bailey, who was uh, a longtime reporter for Commercial Appeal and for the Daily Memphian and covered a lot of things, a lot of beats over the years, but really the last part of his career did a lot of work on community development and real estate. I got to know him that way. And so he's recently retired. I thought it would be very fun to have him on to give some perspective of things, you know, big stories that he thinks were particularly transformative or important for the community. So welcome, Tom. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm flattered. So um, uh, I'm sure you've probably been interviewed before, but this is not the side of the microphone you're used to being on. So true. So give me a little grace. <laughs> I'd rather ask the question. <laughs> um, so, Tom, before we talk about uh, you know, the built environment. And um, I, I'm interested in just, let's just talk a minute about your career because you didn't start your, I think you spent your entire career in journalism, but it didn't start here. So, um, so what's the, what's your, what's the origin story and where were you here? And then when you got here, what did you cover before you started covering the things that I know you for? Well, I'm much like Elvis. I grew up in Tupelo and uh, moved to Memphis for my fame and fortune. Still waiting a little bit. But, On the fortune um, part. Right, right. Insane. But you did pick journalism. Uh, <laughs> so, right. Went to uh, Mississippi State and majored in uh, communication with the emphasis in print journalism. And uh, in December of 77, the, my local newspaper, the Daily Journal, uh, offered me a winner of winter internship basically in, Star- in Starkville or Tupelo in Tupelo at the end of it about a month uh, the publisher persuaded me to stay on and with the promise that he would give me time in the summer to go back and finish my senior year classes um, so I worked for the Daily Journal uh, for a couple of years and then back then the commercial appeal had a network that pretty vast network of bureaus, uh, North Mississippi, East Arkansas, West Tennessee, the capital cities. And uh, the uh, 
I got offered the job of the Tupelo Bureau of the Commercial Appeal, which I held for two and a half years. Sort of like a baseball farm system. The editors in Memphis get to see if you can, uh, you know, if, if you're a good fit. And if you are, they'll bring you up to Memphis or something. And uh, usually takes, it like it took my old colleague, uh, Wayne Risher, about six months. It took me two and a half years to get up here. Uh, and uh, so came up to Memphis in 82. Okay. And uh, had a variety of uh, beats, uh, uh, general assignments, uh, a lot, uh, spent a lot of years in Millington. Uh, we had bureau and uh, I would drive from my midtown ho- uh, home up to Millington every day. Enjoyed that immensely. And then Carville and Germantown a little bit. And uh, then came uh, came back to the main newsroom at the Commercial Appeal. I think about the time the Great Recession hit, maybe right before, and, uh, and for the business desk. And uh, that's how I sort of migrated into from this. I mean, I covered everything from trans- had but years past, transportation, religion, wrote some columns. and um, But uh, sort of since about 2008, 2009, settled into various uh, aspects of business, a, a, lot, a lot of community development a lot of architecture, um, a lot of those planning boards where I first uh, got familiar with, with you. Uh, were you Board of Adjustment? Or I was land? on Land Use Control Board, which, of course, for people that don't know, is the what Memphis calls essentially its planning commission. Exactly. And uh, so I've been doing, doing that. You know, community development projects in Binghampton and Fraser and a lot of that very important work of the community development corporations, you were always very interested in that development that was happening at the grassroots level. I sure was. And uh, I remember uh, you and uh, Sarah Neustock, I think at one point uh, in a few stories, they, my editors let me get away with just in passing calling Sarah a change agent. Yeah. Uh, it was really dynamic what y'all were doing. Yeah. And we may talk about that a little more later in the show for sure. Um, I do think we were change agents. I mean, Sarah in particular, not to take the um, take the spotlight off of her, but I do think that the or- she and the organization were change agents. And I sort of like to say, and like I said, we'll talk about this more, that we were sort of the spark that ignited a lot of things that turned out to be transformational. So, but before we leave your career, and I don't want to get, I don't want to digress too much, but, um, you know, reflect a little bit about how journalism has changed. I mean, you were, of course, I mean, that's your career is that your career arc. I mean, we went from an era when there were a lot of bureaus in suburban areas to not only no bureaus, but you went from commercial pill to daily Memphian. So you went from a paper um, to a completely digital. And I'm sure that your job changed some. Yeah. You know, I tell people uh, that one of the great things about working for an online only paper, uh, I make a lot of errors in my stories and uh, you you can't hide it. You can't be defensive. You got to correct it. Got to own up to it. You got to maintain your credibility. The wonderful, like if I wrote a story about, Emily Trenum, and I misspelled your last name, and you called and left a voicemail on my on my line. I would go in to my story, I would correct it, and then I would 
email you back or call you back and say, sorry, and I have already corrected and republished that. I, I love that. And there's something about making an error in print that <laughs> that's uh, more sobering. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's a bit, and just the, uh, the immediacy of everything. One of the biggest changes is uh, the way you approach uh, daily journalism. Um, if I go to a land use control board, maybe 30, 40 years ago, it was enough to emphasize what projects were approved and what weren't, what were held. That's not good anymore. You've got, obviously, you got to convey that. But you've got to have these other layers to the stories about the whys and the who's uh, and uh, the impact. And and uh, you can't rely on the inverted pyramid it, where the inverted pyramid is where you just put the most important fact on top and uh, and just come down the story with lesser important facts. And uh in this day, with, with everything being uh, broadcast online, uh, available online, uh, it's kind of superfluous in a way. And what do you think about all the, you know, the ability, especially in sort of contentious cases like pe- the ability of people, the online comments? I'm sure that was. I'm sure you got letters back in the day, and then after that you got emails. But mm-hmm. um but there's just um, much more ability of people to react in real time and um, to say, you know, I'm totally against this project or you totally missed the point, Tom, or, I mean, you know, people say everything. One of, one of my strengths, and it may not be a strength, is uh, over the years, you, uh, you know, doing this for so long, there's strengths and weaknesses to that, but you get pretty thick skin. and. Uh, I can be embarrassed by, especially if somebody, if a reader points out a factual error. Um, but uh, number one, you love that they're reading. And uh, also just love uh, the free flowing exchange of information. The more, the better. And uh, and sometimes you get story ideas out of it. Uh, I've seen some comments where I've, it's, motivated me to go back in the story and and add something or correct something that sort of thing so it's so it's it's a good thing and you just you do sort of have to have thick skin though yeah i think that's true um you know it still amazes me you know how strident people can be and um you know mm-hmm. sort of um digressing from the digression you know one of the things that's still that's still uh, of course i look at you know articles about planning and development and you know look at the comments and you know one of the things that people continue to say that always i don't know why it upsets me i guess cuz it's personal in that people still think that you know all these appointed boards are in the pockets of real estate developers and i mean you see that all the time that you know, land use control board, board of adjustment, they're in the pockets of the real estate developers. And, you know, you know yourself that that is absolutely not true. And even I was, you know, I was sort of a community representative on that board. And, but even the, the, even the private sector developers who, 
I might not agree with all the time. I mean, nobody was in the pocket of developers and everyone took the work very seriously. And even now I find that upsetting. I haven't been on language control board in probably 10 years. And I still find that upsetting when people say it, which they do all the time in comments. Well, you know, um, I agree with you. Uh, I'm, you know, sometimes on those boards, there's a, there are a few members that rarely have a comment and you think, well, maybe they're not, you can, every now and then you'll see somebody that probably didn't read the, the case, but more often than not, uh, I've been impressed with the, with engagement of the land use control board members, the board of adjustment members. And there's a, there's a couple of, like a couple of examples who could be, let's call St. Jude, lump them in with developers, a huge, uh, amazing economic impact in Memphis, unbelievable, and what they're going to be doing. So you think, okay, um, if anybody's going to get their way politically, it's going to be St. Jude. And they usually do. They usually do. But what happened last week? Yep, I know. uh, They wanted to build a what, a six-story garage in, in Uptown, and uh, the land use, was it the land use control board? Board, board of board adjustment. Board of adjustment shot him down. And, and no. Uh, and um, people like John Jackson, uh, the, the land landscape architect, I remember on another St. Jude project, uh, the one that they're building right now on the on the west side of, uh, of Third, going to be connected to campus with the Skywalk, uh, and the north side of that, they're building a, a building that's basically going to fill an entire block. And on the north side of that building, it faces Overton, um, what is it? Overton uh, Avenue. Overton Avenue. And the grand plan, I mean, you know this, but I think the grand plan all these years is for Overton Avenue to be this wonderful uh, new urban uh, avenue with, with uh, lots of transparency and you want sidewalks filled with street and activity and activation. And and here comes St. Jude and their north side of this brand new building that they're planning is going to be a wall and a, not only a wall, but a fence <laughs> a few feet from the wall. They do love and, to put fences around things. Exactly. Um, and I just remember being impressed with, uh, now they, they, they did get what they, they did get basically what they wanted. They had to make a few adjustments. It's still going to be sort of a block killing kind of a, a development, but I do remember John Jackson The I don't know if it's too much to call it the courage, but here he was, he was being really critical of the plan and what it meant for the community's long range plan for that street. Um, and at least it, his criticism uh, led to some adjustment. Well, for sure, if you're in the private sector, it does take some courage. I never, with, with, with the, you know, the exception of city cases, I never worried about there being any, you know, negative. I used to get pushback from neighborhoods sometimes because I didn't always support the wishes of the neighborhood, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have any kind of, you know, skin in the general game. So, so I do, I do think it takes courage. So Tom, I invited you on the show because um, 
I thought it would be fun to hear your thoughts about, um, you know, there's been, I mean, you know, you know, I came into community development in 2000 and for a long time, you know, nothing really happened on the community development neighborhood revitalization front. And, but that's no longer the case. And so I thought it would be fun to talk about some projects that you thought were, you know, particularly significant, transformative, or you personally found them very rewarding to, um, to cover. And I think the first one we were going to talk about is Crosstown Concourse, which of course is a perfect example. So, so, uh, just talk a little bit about Crosstown Concourse and why you think it was so important. And then I'll, I'm sure I'll have some, some thoughts to offer as well. Well, I think it's a miracle. I still think it's a miracle. Um, I live just up the V and E green line from uh, the concourse. Um, and I would, for decades, I would drive down North Parkway and you see it and you just, you would think it's a shame that it's, become blighted since the uh what the early 90s and um but i didn't have the capacity for that kind of creativity to even imagine that anything could be done other than if some deep-pocketed person might demolish it but then in a neighborhood that was experiencing some uh, economic distress why would somebody spend a lot of money to even demolish this blighted behemoth? Um, and so I, if I remember right, uh, there was a New York uh, firm or, or owner uh, that had some sort of vague plan uh, for some sort of uh, redevelopment um, that was stymied by the recession, I believe. And then um, I can't remember how public I believe it was Staley Cates. I can't remember exactly how public he was at the time. I remember at one point, my former board chairman at the Daily Memphian, Andy Cates, spoke publicly about uh, the vague future ownership plans uh, after Staley bought it. Uh, but then there was nothing. And then Todd Richardson um, comes on the scene as head of Crosstown Arts. And it was the most remarkable piece of community building. Uh, it, it was almost textbook, uh, I would imagine. The, uh, the way, and, and I would follow that. I wrote stories about Crosstown Arts and how it was uh, reaching out into the community, incredibly grassroots, neighbors, uh, business owners, uh, uh, houses of worship, uh, building relationships, establishing Crosstown Arts, having events. Uh, and this, and when they were doing all that for several years, there was, they didn't even talk about, would not acknowledge the possibility of redeveloping the building. It was just about building this, this community. And uh, I went to some of the fun, my wife and I went to some of the creative fun fundraisers they would have those, uh, those, those dinners those dinners on top of on the top of the garage and uh, i didn't go to the was there some opera in the in the garage underneath i didn't go to that one but i did have a heck of a great time uh, on top on a pretty evening on top of the garage where uh, 
what you would uh, cast your vote or give your $25 or whatever to these people who were uh, artists minded and opposing art things or, or something. But it was just it was just incredible. And this goes on for several years. And so I'm at the commercial appeal. I can't remember what year, if it was 2012, 2013, or 14. But Todd Richardson calls and says, um, we want to uh, we want to make an announcement, but uh, I want to bring some folks down to the newsroom. I said, okay. Uh, and um, in come the eight, they call it like the founding charter tenants, the founding partners, people like Gary Shorb, who is head of uh, Methodist, uh, Scott Morris of Church Health. Uh, there's some that have since not worked out, uh, but at the time, Gestalt Schools, um, West Clinic, which uh, was going to be part of it, but in, in others. Rhodes College, I think. Rhodes College, right, CBU. And uh, so this was so different than anything I'd ever experienced with press conference or this kind of a project. Usually um, when a developer uh, presents a big plan, they'll have the uh, the wonderful, beautiful uh, architectural renderings. And it's usually some kind of sales job. They want to make an impression to the public and they go to the go go public. They want to get tax incentives eventually. They want to get uh, commercial tenants or, or the, maybe they want to get investors. In this case, they had everything locked down. That was what, I mean, this was not a pie in the sky announcement. This is, they had contracts signed that everybody was, and that, that this miracle was funded and is happening. And it was like the best, I guess you could call it a scoop. I didn't sniff it out. They came to me, but it was like one of the most fun stories. Uh, just the gravitas of it. Uh, I'd never experienced anything like that. Yeah, I you really captured it. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. The vision, I always, when I, when I, of course, I know Todd Richardson. I don't know him well. I'd love to have him on the program. But what I tell people about him, I said he was, you know, a tenured art history professor turned real estate developer. And yeah, he and Chris Miner, the vision they had, and then the, you know, the ultimate biting, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I'm going around to the community and 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 asking people to take a bite. And even if it was a small bite, like Rhodes College, would you commit to renting a suite of offices for, I'm just using them as an example, would you commit to renting a suite of offices for five years? And um, and in and Church Health, of course, moving their headquarters there. And um, and it's this unbelievable when you go there, of course, I go there frequently because I'm a volunteer. And of course, the radio station is there. I volunteer for Crosstown Arts as well. And it's when you go there, it's just an unbelievable blend of arts and community. And it's a huge success story. And it's and of course, it's one of those projects that has a million funding sources, um, you know, tax credits and tax credits of various kinds and grants and infrastructure funds from government. And um, it, it is a miracle. And after driving by with the ultimate white elephant 
probably next to the pyramid. I mean, driving by there for years and years and years, and it was just this beautiful building just boarded up. And I couldn't even, my little mind couldn't wrap myself around how it could ever be redeveloped. And now it's just, it is, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree. It was funny, even um, years into the project, still they would not, they would deflect any question about who who's behind this. And finally, when they had to go to City Hall for uh, public uh, support for the uh, infrastructure leading into the uh, building, um, one of the council members said, "Well, if I'm if we're going to if we're going to allocate fifteen million or whatever it was to this, I need to know who I'm giving it to." Yep. And it was at City Hall where they said, "Well, Staley Case." <laughs> so, well, and that wasn't a particularly well kept secret, but I agree with you. I would say that's right. a um, that's that's you know potentially one downside is that there could have been more transparency on the front end. And I mean, I understand, um, mm-hmm. you know. People, people like that want to deflect attention away from themselves and, def, you know, right. and, and shine the light on the projects themselves and who's doing the work. I get that. But but anyway, I for, had forgotten about that. Uh, that right. Well, the other thing about this is um, that that quality of, of community building within the development that they incorporated so strongly uh, better together. And uh, the idea of um, people forming relationships that otherwise wouldn't uh, may not be exposed to each other and and facilitating that with various activities from music to to uh, art uh, exhibits. Um, And, you know, I I was in there last week and going through the West atrium and there's this middle of the day, there's this woman playing the piano in the middle of the atrium, uh, just things like that. It's uh, that would be, if I were, if I were still in journalism, uh, you know, that might not be a bad story is to, it's, it's easy to see the, the physical um, part of everything that seems so successful but I uh, would love to do a story about, okay, how is that, uh, this abstract uh, part working out of community? Is our people in relationship uh, that might not have been otherwise? Uh, how is that working out? Definitely. I think it's, I think it's doing okay. I think so too. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to former reporter Tom Bailey, and we're talking about projects that were transformative for Memphis over the last decade or so. We just finished talking about Crosstown Concourse. And Tom, so let's talk. One thing we talked about before we started recording is just, um, you know, adaptive reuse projects in Memphis. There's been a lot more of those over the last 10 years, including Crosstown Concourse. And I think you you mentioned sort of, you thought Chick-fil-A on Union, not one of my favorite projects, but sort of kicked that off. But let's talk about some, some um, what adaptive reuse projects do you think are were particularly important? The reason I mentioned Chick-fil-A in my note to you is that seemed to be the start. That to me is a is not the miracle of C- Crosstown Concourse. 
But there you have this, what, Atlanta-based corporation wants to be on union like a lot of businesses do. They have this old, uh, beautiful old stone building in the way, want to get rid of it. Uh, June West and Memphis Heritage uh, do battle. And they go to a, has to be, has to have been great expense to preserve the wall facade with bracing and make it a, a courtyard or patio. Um, and in a way, not a big deal, but in a way, to me, it says you're in friggin' midtown and, and we have standards. And that, and that is such a huge statement that you're not in suburbia. You know, we care. And it seemed like there was some momentum that started there. Uh, not perfect. Um, but, uh, uh, always look with some community pride at that facade there. I, I think it's an important symbol. Uh, That's interesting because, you know, early on in the show, I did one about the challenge of churches and and those talked specifically about the church on summer um, Highland. I guess it's Highland United Methodist Church, which, which, by the way, I just learned that another church is purchasing, which is wonderful news. Um but but um, yeah, churches church, churches are hard to reuse, um, and for a variety of reasons. So so I agree with you. So, but what other adaptive reuse projects do you think uh, stand out to you besides that one? So, which sort of kicked a lot of things off? Making the announcement, what they spent about twenty. We're going to spend about twenty-seven million. His his solution was no. You don't just take this building and uh, renovate it and. Uh, be financially successful with it, we're going to uh, complement it with some new construction uh, next door with new apartments and a parking garage and sort of use that as a as sort of a leverage. Uh, and I guess it's worked. I, I don't, I don't know what the financials are, but uh, that was, that was somewhat of a miracle. How long, considering how long the brewery languished and seemed to be uh, minutes from the wrecking ball. I, I agree. I thought I thought for sure the brewer is going to be torn down. Um but you left out a step, Tom, which is the um which was the you know the creative placemaking that happened there, which you know Tommy Pacello and his um partners in crime uh staged there, which revealed the potential. I don't think that would have happened. You know, they put in sort of a, a beer hall and they had events over a month. They made a bunch of pallet furniture. And that was one of the biggest and first of those kind of events in Memphis. And I personally think that is what ignited the, well, I don't think the project, I don't know, of course, but I'm a mad, I don't think the project would have happened were it not for that, that prevision. I think Billy Orgel con- affirms confirms what you just said. I think he was uh, he tells a story about being uh, walking around with I don't know it may not have been Pacello, but it was somebody that said let's let's they were having that. Uh, let's go have a beer activity. and see what this is all about. Right, right, and that uh, that got his attention. And so uh, you're exactly right. Even he uh, confirms that. Let's see other. Uh, well, the, you mentioned the Chisco, which is another building that I thought was just never gonna be fixed up. Right, and uh, led by Carlisle with with others, um, 
and they uh, both the old building and the mid-century modern next door that uh, had been owned by i believe kojic Ko- kojic owned the whole thing okay and um so and i know carlisle uh chance carlisle says that the rent they're charging per foot is about the highest in memphis and it uh was sort of affirmation for for that project and i don't think do you remember if there was concern i know there wouldn't have been a level of concern about the conwood building that there was about the tennessee brewery i don't remember if there was a lot of concern about the Conwood. Building. I don't think it was on the people's radar screen to the, yeah. I mean, the, the brewery is on, you know, right on the, you know, the, the, the shore of Memphis right. and is very prominent. No, I don't think people really were aware, but that whole, that building is going to be the centerpiece of a whole new development called the snuff district. And right. which is going to be, residential and commercial, I think some offices and some public space. So that's going to be really cool. Right. And right across the street. uh, And I did notice uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving by there. uh, They've already got uh, new glass and part of the part of the main building. uh, So you can start to get a feel for what the renovated building is going to look like, which is really cool. Across Front Street, on the southeast corner of Kill in front is uh, an old industrial, a really old industrial building that uh, is really cooler space to me. It's got a vast uh, ceiling and timber, and uh, it's going to be an event space. Same, same folks, Orgel. Um, and so you're right, it's going to be a whole district. And one of the best things is that they are we think about it and memphis's access to water the river and the harbor kind of ends at um willis uh in a way um and they're going to because north of willis in uptown it's overgrown uh, at the harbor and you just uh i'm sure some Probably somebody has made their way through there, but not not many people. So, but Orgel is going to uh, his plan is to have a park on the uh, west side of the old Snuff uh, District building, and the park and and some single family homes. Uh, I think he's counting on the city being uh, either a full partner or taking a lead in developing the park. Well, plus the great that Greyhound building, which is very cool, which is in that neighborhood, is getting ready to be redeveloped. So, uh, so, right. so Tom, do you think these? Um, do you think there's? Um, and maybe this is obvious, but I want to ask anyway. Do you think there's, you know, more interest, less opposition in, or more acknowledgement than there was at one time of the importance of? of repurposing our old buildings, not just the, the breweries, but the other smaller ones as well. I, I do. I think there's been some sort of, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if we've reached critical mass with public education, but I think we've gone a long way down the road and you just hear a lot more grassroots support. For instance, uh, Chance Carlisle, his company, uh, got a lot of pushback on uh what he did with the uh, with the nylon net building at Seven Vance, old, uh, more than a century year old 
a warehouse with had a lot of rich history to it on the bluff um the even some of the ground floor spaces would have views of the river so a terrific piece of a terrific block chance who gets so much credit he and his family so much credit for what they did with the chiska i think that gives him a lot of credibility when he says we looked every which way we could to try to save this it, because of the condition um other things we we just couldn't we had to bring it down there's some people that just don't believe that but i think because what he did with the chiska he gets a, a little uh, leeway on that um, well and projects have to cash flow right um they just do and um yeah i don't know um you know i didn't pay a lot of attention to that project i know it had some opposition but but parts of the building are being preserved are they not no it's all gone okay well that's true it's it's a it's a big hole now the interesting thing is chance carlisle also bought the big old uh warehouse uh due east of seven vance and this is the warehouse that fronts front street uh there i think it's at pontotoc or no it may not be pontotoc but um i'm pretty sure i'd be surprised if i'm sure he wants to keep that i'd be i'd be pretty shocked if if he were planning to bring that down i, I just i think what happened at seven vance was one off um so uh, yeah so um so let's pivot and talk a little bit about um, something we talked about earlier, which was the huge growth of, you know, green lines and greenways and you know, bike lanes that connect to them. And there's been a tremendous amount of that over the past decade. And of course, this had a huge impact on, uh, you know, neighborhood revitalization. And um, so, so. Talk to me about that. Uh, it seemed like it was about 2009, 2010, when one of the big national cycling magazines uh, put Memphis on it, called, declared Memphis was the worst city for cycling, uh, counting uh, probably uh, weighing accidents, deaths, uh, lack of lack of bike lanes. Uh, mayor Wharton, A.C. A. Wharton was the mayor then, and uh, he paid attention to that. There was, I, th- I think actually, not to my own horn, but I think I wrote some story for the commercial appeal that had to do with the potential, broaching the potential for uh, the CXX rail uh, line that went through East Memphis. And... Um, a few months or sometime later, I think Jack Simons called me or, or somebody with him, and they had some anonymous donor that was getting the ball rolling uh, for a rails to trail for the what would become the Shelby Farms Green Line, which was huge. I mean, through uh, there were some opposition people uh, didn't didn't want strangers uh, looking over their backyard fences and that sort of thing, but it would connect uh, almost uh, 
mid almost to Midtown, all the way out to Shelby Farms Park. And uh, had that, and a couple of years later, or about the same time, there was an issue on, uh, there was a proposal to give Madison Avenue a road diet. And, and and just so people, if people don't know, I won't read my, I didn't tell you before we interview, but I have a jargon bell that I ring. Um, well, so well, I'm not going to ring the bell, but let I, I am paid to interpret the jargon. <laughs> so uh, just so people don't know, um, a road diet is essentially when a street has more lanes than it needs to, um, for the cars it has on it. And so there's a, a lane reduction, usually in addition of bike lanes or pedestrian infrastructure. One of the things about a road diet is slows the traffic down, which has a lot of benefit for business owners and pedestrians. And Madison was, I didn't want to interrupt you, but Madison was really um, the first one and hugely, hugely controversial. Right. I still remember the dry cleaners of Mercury. Uh, that that owner was leading the <laughs> leading the charge. And for a while, the Huey's uh, business, which is right in the middle of everything there, they were uh, they were against it. And so it was really controversial. The, the, their thing, the business uh, people, uh, their thinking was that, you know, the more traffic, the more lanes, the more traffic, the more traffic, the more business. Right. And um, so mayor. And so that that I give Mayor Wharton all kinds of credit. That was a tough, tough decision. I do, too. Um, and he went ahead with this progressive decision to give uh, to to narrow the uh, or to reduce the traffic lanes to two, one each way, a middle, I think maybe the middle turn lane, and then and a lot parking. more parking on bike lanes and street parking, which the businesses along there didn't have enough parking and. Right. I'm, um, I'm with you. I mean, Mayor Horton is, um, I give him so much credit for not only leading, but also for, for hiring people that were willing to change the policy. And on the show that was, that would support future infrastructure. And so the show that's Memphis Metropolis is airing today is actually my interviews with Robert Connect, because I wanted to do a show on the potential impact of, of um, the federal infrastructure bill on Memphis. And he just observed in passing that, of course, we've modified our codes. So we talked about street repaving as really something that people want to see more than anything else when infrastructure dollars flow, they want their street to be repaved. And, but he just mentioned in passing that the codes were such that, of course, if a street gets repaved, if it's appropriate, it automatically gets bike lanes and pedestrian improvements. That's just part of the package. And um, I, and Mayor Porton, you know, like I said, through bringing the right people on supporting policy change, he really, um, I give him, along with grassroots um, advocacy, which pushed him, I give him all the credit for that. Yeah. Um, and that has, uh, I think Madison is the first uh, example of that, that I can recall. I think that started things off and since uh, North Parkway, um, I was at, um, I live in Becca and I was at the Becca community association meeting Saturday morning and uh, some of the volunteer leaders were given uh, updates 
and they're pushing now. It might be harder since it's a state road, but they're pushing to try to give uh, this road diet uh, to Jackson Avenue, which is four lane and fast uh, from, I think from Evergreen all the way to Springdale. And uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I hope I hope they can uh, pull it off. I live a block and a half south of uh, Jackson and McLean, and which is a a scary intersection. Even though they've got brand new uh, state of the art signalization on it, uh, just last week I heard this terrible impact. Uh, it, it's a sound I hear maybe about twice a year um, with cars colliding. And it's just, uh, they're just roaring down this big four-lane street. And so you go back to Matt, back to Madison, um, the warning was that uh, traffic would, would back up and it would just be uh, congested. And I, I don't think that's happened. I know uh, our former uh, planning director, zoning administrator, Josh Whitehead, used to live uh, right on uh, that section of Madison and, and he attests uh, what a difference. Uh, well, I live, a, I live a block from Madison and McLean and there used to be crashes there all the time, all the time. And of course, McLean has had a road diet as well. And it's um, well, and, well, and the truth is at that intersection at rush hour, it does bottle up. So, you know what? Yeah. So what? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I, you have to once in a while you have to wait for an extra light, and um, it's not the it's not the end of the world. So it's um, you know we haven't said this, but the gold standard, Emily, is uh, you got to get pedestrians, people on the streets. Back when I was, I think my last year at the Commercial Appeal, two thousand eighteen. Uh, Henry, I got a chance to ride around uh, Main, South Main area with Henry Turley, just the two of us. And he's he's talking about maybe some of his uh, vague plans and, and some of the history. And um, down near the central station, he sees this young woman alone with a dog on a leash. And he points to her and he says, Tom, that, that right there is gold. You want people to feel safe, uh, to be out, uh, you know, alone. But what that, what that requires is eyes on the street and a lot of, and you want, and beyond that, you want energy. You want human beings crowding the sidewalk. Um, well, and, so. and, and slowing down the traffic. I mean, I can, I live within walking distance to Overton square and, before the road diet, it was not an enjoyable walk. You know, cars would just haul ass on that street. It was two lanes in each direction. Just wasn't a pleasant walk at all. And it's completely different. Now you can, I mean, sometimes cars speed, but now you can walk comfortably. The traffic doesn't move that fast. Like you said, more businesses have opened up. And the thing about Madison also is that it, people could see once people can see it, then they want it. Cause I know the, there's been a whole bunch of uh, planning around the streetscape uh, and pedestrian infrastructure on summer. And I don't know whether summer 
could accommodate a road diet. You know, also it's a state highway, which is a lot of additional complications. Summer is pretty well traveled. But the point is that people have asked for it. How do we slow the traffic down on summer? And because people who live in those neighborhoods, the Heights, they want that. They want people to feel comfortable in summer. It's better for businesses. And, you know, there's, of course, schools there. People People want that. And I think they saw it on Madison and other places. And they said, you know what? We want that for our neighborhood. Right, right. And it'll be interesting to watch summer. You get um, one of the developers I was thinking about that's been a little bit of a change agent is uh, Bill Townsend, who's who uh, owns uh, six properties now between uh, on the westernmost a couple of blocks of, of Summer Avenue between uh, East Parkway and Hollywood. And uh, so he's on my yeah. wish list as a guest from Memphis Metropolis. I haven't, I don't know him, but um, you and I were talking about developers who were champions for mm-hmm. old buildings. And for sure, he's in that category. So I'm hoping to persuade him to come on and, uh, and be a guest and talk yeah. about his projects. Another uh, miracle that we hadn't talked about, I think you and Sarah were heavily involved in, and that was Broad Avenue. Broad Uh, Avenue, for sure. And again, it was one of those things where, uh, like that step I missed with the Tennessee Brewery, there was a huge step with with Broad Avenue, and that was the uh, tactical urbanism and the new face for an old Broad event. Uh, which uh, just a glorious weekend. I, I remember being out there. I think it was a Thursday or Friday night before the the event. Of, in, in, to explain, uh, it is where you have this ideal of uh, an urban streetscape that you'd like to change to slow traffic and enhance the experience for walkers. And so you do things like uh, put out benches to sit on you would put out little uh plant big planters uh, at corners kind of into the street to slow traffic things like that you they would paint paint bike lane uh, bike lanes and so they had and they call it new face for an old broad event and that that was just amazing what it led to it was amazing it was amazing. And like you said, it was the first. Um, the funny thing is, and I don't know whether I ever told you this, of course, of course, now this kind of creative placemaking tactical urbanism, I mean, it's in the textbooks, but at the time it wasn't that heavily used. And um, and I was working, John Paul Schaefer was, was a, I think he was still in graduate school and he emailed me and Sarah at, at Livable Memphis, and he said, you know, they did this thing in Texas called a better block. And mm-hmm. I think that's, they had done it twice in Texas. He just saw it. He said, we should do this here. And um, so we teamed up with, of course, Pat Brown at T. Clifton Gallery. And not only did it ignite the redevelopment of Broad, because, you know, we activated storefronts that had been vacant for decades that were rented two weeks later, not only did it, did it um, activate broad and leaked and ultimately encourage a lot of that redevelopment, but also it launched a whole series called Memphix, 
um, mm. where those kinds of reimaginings, temporary reimaginings happened. And those were done on, you know, Cleveland and in the edge. And that was the first in a series of events like that. So people could, and I remember being at New Face and Old Broad, people would come up and say, what is this? Like, what are you doing here? And we just say, you know, this, we're just trying to, like, it could be like this all the time. What do you think? Right. And, and again, I guess you have to go back to uh, giving Mayor Wharton some credit. I, I remember uh, the new, then new planning director, Josh Whitehead, I seen him out there as the volunteers were painting and this is the day before. And I thought, okay, well, this, you would call it tactical urbanism, a little edgy, but this has the approval of, uh, of city leaders, which was a good thing. Well, and the funny thing is, and we sort of alluded to this when we are talking about Mayor Ward, and of course, a very important person in a division in allowing projects to move forward is, is engineering. And mm-hmm. Mayor Wharton did eventually replace the engineer, the city engineer, but the but the 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 city engineer and the traffic engineer from the old guard came out and like brought their tape measures. And and of course we had painted the bike lanes, that was house paint. We had painted them, you know, per regulations. And they were <laughs> they were regulation <laughs> bike lanes, which ended up staying there for many, many years. And but they brought their tape measures out to make sure that we had it was ridiculous. Right. And we can't assume people know what we're talking about when we mention the consequences of all that uh, is that what I don't know what the latest dollar figure it is, but it's many tens of millions of dollars have been invested in those few blocks since then. The Hamp Line, which is the state-of-the-art protected bike lane, runs through it. And then here come the pri- private development with Mikowski Ringel down on the corner at East Parkway and uh, and Sam Cooper. And now there's going to be townhouses at Hollywood and Sam Cooper. And uh, they're building... 350 unit apartments across the street from the century old storefronts. Um, you're talking about populating the sidewalks. So it's just amazing. It is amazing. And that was mainly uh, volunteers that did that event. You know, it was John Paul Kyle Wagenschutz was a volunteer. Chooch Pickard, a local architect, was a big volunteer. I mean, we did have some, um, a little bit of paid staff, you know, Pat, Brown and her whole team and and we don't have you know we we've talked about so many great projects we don't have I guess we're we're running out of time we don't we were going to talk about Overton Square there's a ton of projects I'd love to um, have you come back at some point because you know one of the issues with these projects is they've um, renovated long neglected long blighted areas but of course there's some you know not always positive ripple consequences um, from some of those affecting people who live in the neighborhood. And that's, a, that's, you know, something we should acknowledge. Um, right. And um, even with all of this great redevelopment of places, something we should acknowledge and like that we don't have time to talk about it today, but. Um, right. And, and there's some, um, there's some new, there's some sort of faux new urbanism going on that is, sort of galling to me where uh, 
developers and businesses are, are, are building up to the street and, but they're covering their windows. Oh, which, don't, which, don't get me started about that. Which is anathema. And I, I'm waiting for that. If this renaissance is going to go to the next level, that has to be addressed. I mean, they built the Methodist, uh, Le Bonner hospital, great hospital, once Poplar Avenue has a door to front Avenue to Poplar Avenue, but from the very first day, is they're just basically fake. I know, I know. That whole thing, and, the, and so don't give me. Uh, I, right, I shouldn't get started on right. that. All right. Well, we're out of time, but it's been a fantastic discussion. You're t- definitely going to have to come back on. Well, so fun. you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Tom Bailey, who's a former reporter, covered real estate and community development for many years. And it's been a great discussion talking about the last 10 years in particular. So thanks for coming on, Tom. Well, that was fun. Thanks so much, Emily. Rust College is now accepting applications for the fall 2022 semester. For more information, visit rustcollege.edu or contact admissions at 662-252-8000, extension 4043. Rust College, where tomorrow's leaders are students today. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. The Brooks is open in Overton Park, home to Memphis art collection since 1916. The Memphis Brooks Museum of Art holds the largest collection of world art in the region, with more than 10,000 works spanning 5,000 years of art and cultures. Remember, every Wednesday is free and open until 8 p.m. They are a proud sponsor of WYXR. For more information about the museum and their exhibitions, visit brooksmuseum.org. You belong at the Brooks.